gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. The Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, The Superman Fan Podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, From Crisis to Crisis, A Superman Podcast, Superman Forever Radio, The Superman Vidcast, The World's Best Podcast, The SFR Daily Planet, and Radio KL from supermanhomepage.com, as well as the audio dramas Superman, Last Son of Krypton, and Supergirl, Last Daughter of Krypton, from Pendant Audio Production. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, J. David Weeder, Cayman Stoll, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co-host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman. Hey folks, and welcome to episode 25 of Superman and the Bronze Age, the only podcast exclusively covering Superman's adventures from 1971 to 1986. Like I said, this is episode 25, and boy, do I have a big episode for you guys, hopefully. Uh, But without getting too long, I hope. That's my plan anyway. I'm going to keep going. A big episode that includes introducing two brand new features, at least for this show, to the show, which I'm going to get to in good time. First, though, I want to uh, talk a little bit about some current Superman movie news. Uh, mostly it's the movie, uh, because I talked about the whole DC new thing last time. Or maybe a previous one. I don't remember. I'm sorry. Anyway, uh, in movie news, uh, filming has begun on Superman, The Man of Steel, which unfortunately had its release date pushed back from December of 2012 to June 2013. On one hand, this is kind of disappointing because we now have to wait six more months for this movie. But on the other hand, um, that's six more months to do some fine-tuning um, and to kind of perfect it as much as possible. Plus, it shows that Warner Brothers has enough confidence in the movie to move it into the summer with all the other big blockbusters instead of December. So I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, the other big thing that's happened recently is that we've got our first good look of at Henry Cavill in the Superman uniform that he's going to be wearing in the new movie. Which I actually like. Um, the, the S is big and it's prominent on his chest. It looks a little different. It looks more like Earth 2 Superman, which I don't have a problem with, but it does look a little different. The, the boots, the boots look even more like what you currently see in the comics than Christopher Reeves did. So that's kind of cool. Plus, uh, you can see he's got a belt, bright, shiny belt. Doesn't look like it has the S on it like Brandon Routes did. But um can't tell about the trunks. 
uh, if he's wearing red or not. Uh, it doesn't look like it, but for one thing, I don't want to spend too much time examining a guy's crotch. And for another thing, uh, it's just really too hard to tell on the image that was provided. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing some different, you know, a different pose. Um, maybe and hopefully eventually some video, but I have a feeling that it's going to be quite a while before we actually see him flying or actually wear, you know, in motion wearing the suit. Uh, but in any event, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, it looks like this is a pretty cool suit. It is a little shiny and has some texturing on it, but I think that that won't be quite as noticeable once the, once we actually see it in the movie. And, um, I'm just, I like the suit. Um, I, I definitely think it's better than the Superman Returns suit, which actually um, grew on me more and more the uh, closer we got to the movie. And I got to the point where I actually pretty really liked it uh, by the time the movie came. I just wish the, it was a little more vibrant. Uh, the only, that's about the only thing I have with this. The image as it originally came out was kind of muted on the colors. Uh, there's a couple versions out there that oh, I actually made one of them uh, where I just Set, uh, you know, increase the saturation on the image. Someone else actually photoshopped it to the um, actually resemble more the actual Superman, the classic Superman suit colors. And in those pictures, it looks really good. I hope it's not as muted as it is in the image, but if it is, I'm sure it'll still look fine. I, I really am happy with the costume. Uh, and before we get to this week's issues, or we, like there's more than one person here, uh, before I get to this week's issues, I do have an email. Uh, this one comes in from one Michael Bailey, who you may know of as the host or co-host of several different podcasts. His first one and main one is Views from the Long Box, which he usually hosts by himself, but lately, or I say usually, it's mainly his own private podcast. Um, and get, he get, it allows him to talk about just pretty much whatever he wants and occasionally he has guests with him but lately it's been mostly guests uh, just because he's got, a lot of, he's got a lot of friends in podcasting and he likes to talk to them about certain things so whatever uh, or not whatever but that's kind of so you know it's his show he can do that um, then he also co-hosts Superman the Bronze Age with Jeffrey Taylor Oh, he doesn't. That's my show. He co-hosts from, sorry, he co-hosts from Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast with Jeffrey Taylor, uh, which uh, is at the Superman homepage, as well as being another member of the Superman podcast network, along with Superman of the Bronze Age, which is my show. He hasn't really been on yet, but maybe one day. He co-hosts Xavier's podcast for Gifted Youngsters with J. David Weeder and John M. Wilson, uh, which, of course follows the adventures of the X-Men. Uh, he is one of the panelists on the uh, Spider-Man Crawl Space podcast, and then he also is about to start a new podcast called Bailey's Batman Podcast, which hasn't come out yet. I have the promo for it, though, so I'll be playing that in just a little bit. Um, but that's going to be his new Batman podcast, which is basically going to start up from uh, May 1983, because that's where his collection starts. Uh, well, his uninterrupted collection. I'm sure he's got older stuff, but that's where his uninterrupted collection starts and basically goes up to pretty close to today from the way I, uh, if I remember correctly, but that'll be on the promo. In any event, he's all over the place. 
But he writes in. The subject is, hey, Charlie. And that's me, so I figured it was for me. I have finally gotten to listening through the entire run of Superman and the Bronze Age. I'm sorry it took so long, but there are so many podcasts to listen to and so little time. And don't I know it. Anyway, got to episode four, and you were talking about the iTunes reviews, with the first being from Garrick McNighter. That's me. See, the name is taken from the Golden Age Flash and Dr. Midnight, which, if uh, everyone, if anyone doesn't know, uh, Golden Age Flash is, of course, Jay Garrick, and Dr. Midnight is Jack McNighter, I think. Just thought you would like to know. Looking forward to listening to the rest of the show. Take care, Charlie. Uh, and this post slash email was written by Michael Bailey, a Superman apologist. Well, thank you, Michael. Um, glad you're listening to the show. I I asked him, I, I responded to this. Uh, I'm not completely sure if he means he's just getting to listening to the episode, to the show, or if he's caught up. But in either event, um, hope you're liking the show. Uh, thank you for writing in. Um, like I said, I did a face palm when I read this. Uh, it's it's completely obvious, Garrick McNighter. I mean, the uh, any one that follows this podcast should know that. But um, which reminds me, I actually forgot to mention that he also co-hosts um, Comics Monthly Monday with two true freaks hosts Scott Garner and Chris Honeywell, as well as co-hosting Back to the Bends and Tales of the Justice Society of America with Scott Garner, and of course. Following the Tales of the JSA show, obviously I would know Jay Garrick and McNighter. It just never occurred to me because, of course, Mr. Bailey is known prominently as a Superman fan. So I wouldn't have thought that he would have picked the name, which actually is probably good if he wants to remain anonymous. So, well done, well played, sir. Um, like I said, I've uh, like I said, I do have his promo ready to go, so I'm going to play that as well as another new promo uh, for another new show, and I'll be back with some more with some reviews. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. My name is Michael Bailey, and this is the trailer with a truly epic ending to my new show about Batman, appropriately titled Bailey's Batman Podcast. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a weekly program that looks at a month in the life of the Dark Knight Detective, starting with the books bearing a March 1983 cover date, which is where my solid run of the characters' comics begins, and moving forward until... Well, at least until the books that came out in 2005, because that's where the solid run ends. Each week, I will give you a full synopsis and review of every major ongoing Batman title, with brief stops along the way to look at the important specials, miniseries, one-shots, and Elseworld stories, just to keep things interesting. I'll also be telling you what other books Batman appeared in that month, as well as what was going on elsewhere in the DCU. It is going to be all Batman all the time as I look at over 20 years of the character's history. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the epic ending to this trailer. You ready? The first appearance of Jason Todd. Death in the Family. Nightfall. Epic. No Man's Land. Do you have chills yet? 
all of that and more will be covered on Bailey's Batman Podcast every Tuesday at baileysbatmanpodcast.com. The Hulk on Podcasts. Hulk like podcasts. Hulk listen to podcasts while Hulk smash. The Hulk on Peter David. Hulk like to read Peter David comics. Hulk have problem making words. Hulk write down. Peter David wrote a seminal run on the Incredible Hulk for 12 years. Some of the most provocative, compelling stories came from this era. Filled with striking psychological overtones, bold character developments, and sharp humor. Along with artists like Todd McFarlane, Dale Keown, and Gary Frank, Peter David took the Incredible Hulk and the comic book medium as a whole to new heights. The Hulk on Peter David Podcasts. Uh, Hulk not find Peter David Podcasts. Hulk get mad. Hulk smash! Hey folks, in order to appease the Rampaging Hulk, there is an Incredible Hulk podcast devoted to Peter David. Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast, looks at the entire Peter David run on the Hulk, issue by issue in a bi-weekly format. Join me, J. David Weeder, on a journey through the saga of old J. Jaws at www.incrediblehulksmash.com. Incredible Hulk and all related characters copyright Marvel Comics. Pad Smash is not responsible for gamma radiation sickness, smashed MP3 players, overturned vehicles, tanks thrown through the ceiling, injured supervillains on the lawn, gamma bomb detonations, property damage from debris, deep-rooted psychological damages as a result of intense child abuse resulting in an alternate self-destructive personality with the strength of an atom bomb, or anal leakage. Presenting Superman. Oh, yeah, I'm still recording. <laughs> okay, first up is a completely reprint issue. Superman number 252, which is what, which was a 100-page spectacular. Therefore, it came at, it sold for 50 cents. It had a cover date of June 1972 and was released on April 4th, 1972, with a cover by Neil Adams, which was, or is, pretty amazing. It's basically Superman flying with all the other flying DC heroes with him. So it's really cool. And like I said, there's a lot of reprints. The first two are Superman stories. Uh, in fact, every all but one of the stories in here are Golden Age stories. Uh, the first two, or the first one is called Power Stone. It was reprinted from Action Comics number 47, which came out in April 1942, written by Jerry Siegel and John Sakella. Uh, the next reprint uh, is When Titans Clash, which is also written by Jerry Siegel with art by John Sykela. This one was from Superman 17, which had a July-August 1942 cover date, and that story is a direct sequel to Power Stone, which if any of you haven't read it, because it's been reprinted several places, uh, including the, the place where I first read it was the um, big DC uh, 60 Years of the World's Greatest Heroes, I think it was when that came, book came out, 60 Years, uh, by Les Daniels, and it just covers the entire history of DC Comics. But, of course, that involves Luther getting a power stone and getting not only superpowers, but fangs. Oh, 
understand that, but uh, basically he has this power where electricity, electricity actually gives him superpowers. And by the end of the first story, he's defeated. And while I haven't read When Titans Clash, because I don't actually have the reprint issue here, uh, apparently that second story involves him going to the electric chair, but the electricity actually reviving his powers, similar to probably the scene we saw in um, All-Star Superman. Probably that general idea. Now, I also want to point out, because I was just mentioning Michael Bailey and his shows, and um, I just want to point out uh, that the story, the events of both of those stories actually end up get, being recapped in All-Star Squadron number 20, which uh, Mike and Scott are just a few episodes from actually kept getting up to, which is interesting. Um, now, Superman encounters the ultra-humanite in that, in that story, who actually steals the Power Stone, and and that actually happens immediately after the story, as told in All-Star Squadron 21. So, it's, for one, it's just really awesome timing that I'm mentioning these stories, just as they're about to catch up to it on their show. But, um, it's also cool because, like them, I like how Roy Thomas is able to incorporate a lot of the Golden Age stuff into that book, or All-Star Squadron. So the fact that we have this two-part story that really doesn't get touched on again, um, and then using those two stories in, two, in a two-part story of All-Star Squadron is pretty awesome, if you ask me. Uh, the third story reprinted in this issue was originally untitled, but was later given the title The Fire Murders, featuring Dr. Fate. It was written by Gardner Fox, with art by Howard Sherman, uh, and was reprinted from in Morph, no, not reprinted in, reprinted from Morphun Comics number 57 from July 1940. Uh, the next story uh, is originally titled, or no, it wasn't, it was originally untitled. I can't talk, I'm sorry. I can't talk tonight. Uh, originally untitled, but was later given the title Hawk Girl, featuring, of course, Hawk Girl. And this is actually the first appearance of Shara Hall in the Hawk Girl costume. Written by Gardner Fox with art by Sheldon Moldoff, uh, and that was reprinted from Flash Comics number 24, which was cover dated December 1941. The next story, uh, also entitled, was later, later given the title The Missing Scientist and features Black Condor. Now, I can't find, I haven't been able to find anything with a writer credit, but the art was by Lou Fine. And that's reprinted from Crack Comics number 18 from November 1941. The next story, see, 100 page, and you get all these Golden Age books, so you get a lot of stories in this. Um, the next story, again, originally untitled, uh, later given the title The Return of Zor, featuring the Spectre, written by Jerry Siegel, of course, with art by Bernard Bailey. And that was reprinted from War Fun Comics number 57, which also came out in July of 1940. And, of course, originally shared a book with the Dr. Fate story, so two, those two get to join up again. Uh, the next story actually has a title, Wonders Never Cease, The Menace of the Invisible Raiders, which is a Starman story, written by Gardner Fox, with art by Jack Burnley, and was reprinted from Adventure Comics number 67, cover dated October 1941. So, that probably came up right about the time Pearl Harbor happens, so that's pretty interesting. Um, the next story, uh, again, originally untitled, later given the title The Modern Pied Piper, 
if you want to call 1940 modern, uh, featuring the Ray. Uh, the art on that was by Lou Fine. Again, no writer credit. It's possible that both of those, the Black Condor and Ray, were also written by Lou Fine, but I haven't been able to, you know, find any proof of that. Um, this one was reprinted from Smash Comics number 17 uh, from December 1940. And the final story, uh, they decided to jump up into the Silver Age for some reason, uh, is Superman's Greatest Feats, written by Jerry Siegel, art by Al Plastino, and reprinted from Superman 146, which had a cover date of July 1961. And like I said, that, that was a 100-issue spectacular, so it was 50 cents because it was just under double the pages of a regular issue. So, um, about a week, yeah, about a week later, a uh, week and two days actually, um, a new issue, another issue of Superman came out. So, Superman number 253. And this one went back down to the 52 pages uh, for 25 cents. Cover date again of June 1972, released April 13th, 1972, with a cover by Nick Carty. The first story is titled The Kid Who Saved Superman, written by Denny O'Neill, penciled by Kurt Swan, inked by Murphy Anderson, and of course edited by the great Julie Schwartz. Now, this action-jammed adventure begins with Clark Kent getting an assignment from Morgan Edge to check out some strange disturbances in the Utah salt flats that not even the quote-unquote big brains can explain. Clark figures that this sounds like a job for Superman, so after a quick change in a storeroom, he flies out to Utah in time to see a strange whirlwind that shouldn't be there due to a lack of wind in the area. X-ray vision reveals a Land Rover buried in the salt that the whirlwind has kicked up, so he saves them before they suffocate. Exiting the vehicle are Dr. Ezra Royko, Royko from the National Weather Service, Sourdough Jim, who is a local, and Lois Lane who just happened to be in town to cover the Mormon Tabernacle Choir and decided to investigate the disturbances as well. Sourdough Jim has a camp nearby where he says a strange-looking building just appeared. So Superman abandons Lois and the Doctor to in the Salt Flats and takes Sourdough to the camp. Soon they land at the camp and Superman is shocked to see a building that looks like it might be an illusion or a mirage. So depositing Jim on the ground, Superman checks out the building firsthand. When his X-ray vision doesn't penetrate it, he decides to fly right into it. But at just this moment, the building starts to fade as Superman is buffeted by some unknown force, flinging him around until he's thrown out of the building. As the bu building completes its disappearing act, he sees what looks like the form of a man in armor inside, fading away with it. Now, in order to make sure we don't get too many mysteries in this issue, we flash back 24 hours and see Ferlin Mixley, uh, who you may recall caused some trouble back in Superman number 235 with the Devil's Harp, known as Pan, the Bad Man, or whatever, uh, looking for looking for the ruins where the Devil's Harp was found in an attempt to regain the power he had before Superman humiliated him. Which actually was Superman and his doppelganger, but we won't we won't go there. Suddenly, a building just appears at it. Suddenly, a building just appears before him, but you didn't see that coming. And upon entering, he sees all kinds of strange alien objects, but what really catches his eye is a strange suit of armor that looks way too big. He decides to try it on anyway, and is shocked when it suddenly shrinks to fit his body. 
excuse me, attached to the right hand is a slingshot that shoots laser ammunition, which he figures is exactly what he needs to destroy Superman. Uh, back in the present, Superman meets up with Dr. Farr at Star Labs to explain what he saw and if he can figure it out. The doctor theorizes that the building is being broadcast from somewhere, perhaps another planet, and that it is caught in some sort of space warp, so that when the warp is near Earth, the building appears, and then when the warp leaves our sector of space, the building disappears again. This also explains the whirlwind since that sort of thing upsets natural systems. So who, super, so Superman? So Superman heads back out to Utah to see that the building has returned, but is empty. Meanwhile, several miles away, we see that Nixley's slingshot is responding to his thoughts the way Mjolnir, I think I said that right, Mjolnir, responds to Thor by flying him to Metropolis in response to his thoughts about Superman. Which isn't exactly true. I didn't write that right. Basically, um, when I meant that it responds like Thor, like Mjolnir does to Thor, basically, Nixley's flying, but is kind of being pulled along by the slingshot much the way that Thor uh, flies because his hammer's pulling him, is what I meant. Anyway, he soon finds himself in front of 344 Clinton Street, with the slingshot pulling him inside. Inside, he runs into a young boy named Billy Anders, when suddenly rock band drummer Jangles Jones decides it would be fun to ride his motorcycle down the apartment building stairs with his lynx cat on his back. He ends up crashing into Nixley and Billy, uh, with the slingshot coming into contact with both the cat and the boy at the same time. The drummer drives off, Nixley recovers, and is brought uh, by his slingshot to Clark's apartment. Billy is taken by ambulance to a nearby hospital, and the cat now has the mind of the boy and follows Nixley to Clark's apartment. After hearing where his body was taken, the cat decides to head to the hospital. And that is a crazy scene, let me tell you. Anyway, back in Utah, Superman is still examining the building and the alien objects inside when he finally decides he's had enough waiting around and needs to head back east to handle some of Clark's business in Metropolis. Seeing that something is not right at his apartment building, he lands and checks it with the doorman to find out that Billy is at the hospital. Since he apparently knows Billy, he heads to the hospital and finds out that he's in some kind of mysterious coma. At this point, the cat with Billy's mind finally meets up with his body, and upon contact, both are able to, mis to telepathically communicate with Superman and tell him about the strange man at Clark's apartment. Recognizing Billy's description of the man, Superman flies to the apartment and catches Nixley off guard by crashing through the wall instead of coming up through the door, which is kind of dumb for Nixley to even as well. Yeah, it's kind of dumb for Nixley to assume that Superman would come in through the door. Anyway, uh, learning from his experience with Nixley's harp, Superman decides to grab the slingshot before Nixley can use it, and uses it to fling Nixley, hard to say, fling Nixley out the hole in the wall, breaking the slingshot. In the four seconds it will take for Nixley to hit the ground, Superman flies into space and does Scott's Gar Scott Gardner's favorite thing in the world by throwing the slingshot into the sun then returns to catch Nixley and take him to jail. Figuring that the secret of Nixley's gimmicks and Billy's condition have something to do with the alien building in Utah, he heads back just in, just in time to see the building disappear again, but not before hearing the pleas of the disappearing, disappearing form of one Jean Jones, the Martian Manhunter, 
who had left Earth a couple of years ago to be continued. Now, I find myself really enjoying this issue, despite Superman just kind of abandoning Lois, the Doctor, and Sourdough Jim in the desert, the Rockstar committing a hit-and-run without any repercussions, and Clark's important business in Metropolis being forgotten, and the Superman-Nixley rematch being disappointing didn't help things, but I really found myself liking the story. I thought bringing Nixley back was kind of cool, because I was totally not expecting it. I'm going to... I have not read this story before. Uh, some, like I've mentioned a few times before, I believe. Um, basically, a lot of the things that happened between um, the end of the Kryptonite Nevermore saga with the Sand Superman and about Superman 264, I haven't read a whole lot of. So this was pretty cool. And I totally wasn't expecting Nixley to ever return. I don't know that he ever returns again, but it was cool to see see it happen here, and it makes sense since this is an O'Neill issue. Um, now, while it did make sense for his character, I'd still like to know um, how Nixley got out of the prison, though, because he was going to jail. Considering all he did, I don't think he would have only been sentenced for, like, what, a year at this point? And that's our time. We know comics run at different speeds. So I don't know how he got out of prison. That would have been a pretty cool story, but I think it's just assumed that he got out. Kind of the same as how, you know, Joker just appears out of nowhere, you know, already out of prison, or Penguin does that, or, well, basically any of Batman's rogues gallery. Usually, a lot of the times you don't actually see them get out, you just know that they're out. So anyway, uh, it was also cool to see someone besides Lynn Wayne using Star Labs for a change, and I like that Superman is going to them rather than his fortress all the time. Although that might sort of be my post-crisis upbringing since Superman's not quite as super intelligent post-crisis and goes to people like Dr. Uh, Emil Hamilton or this maybe Kitty Faulkner at Star Labs for help on things. Uh, unfortunately, this story has never been reprinted. In fact, none of the stories in this episode have ever been reprinted. I think that's the first time that's happened since I started this show. Oh, I can't, check that. First time that's happened since I started reviewing three episodes at a time on this, sh or three issues at a time on this show. There you go. Um, the, there was another story. Uh, actually, it's not really a story. It's kind of a two-page spread um, entitled Another Ice Age. And in case you can't guess, that story, well, I'll tell you that in a second here. First of all, I should let you know that the art on this is by Virgil Finley and is reprinted from Real Fact Comics number 12, and, uh, which came out in January, February 1948. And basically what it is, is just imagine, excuse me, is uh, basically the idea on this is just imagine what would happen if another ice age occurred today. It looks really cool. Uh, it's just two pages, and um, it's a pretty interesting read. Then, of course, the last title, uh, the last story in this book is uh, was originally untitled, which is a theme that seems to be following this month. Um, it was later given the title "Baby on the Doorstep." It was written by Jerry Siegel with art by Lee Nowak, and was reprinted from Superman 13, which had a November December 1941 cover date. 
So, one down, two more to go. Um, I'll play a couple promos and come back with our next issue. After these messages, we'll be right back. This is the voice of the randomizer. Do you hear me, Earthman? You gave me your numbers and forced me to pick one. For that, you must face the consequences. Each week, I will make you review a random comic book. Do you hear me, Earthman? A random comic book. Yes, each week on the 20 minute long box I submit myself to the powers of randomness and review a title from my collection, completely at random and all within 20 minutes. It's the Super Compressed podcast for the decompressed, written for trade age. Join me, Steve Lacey, each week at 20minutelongbox.libsyn.com or find me on iTunes. Mondays, available the second Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Okay, World's Finest number 212 is our next issue. Again, cover dated 20, cover dated for 25 cents, yep. Cover dated June 1972 with the release date of April 20th, 1972, uh, and it also was going to set you back a whole quarter, if you could afford it. Now, the cover on this issue uh, looks really cool. Like I said, we saw the Martian Manhunter. He is, of course, the co-star here because this is part two of the two-part story, which is probably the first time we've actually had an actual story crossover other than just some events, but a real crossover between two different titles in the quote-unquote Superman end of the DC 
multiverse. And the cover of this shows Superman getting one heck of a haymaker from Martian Manhunter and crashing into something with his head. I mean, he's, this punch is lifting Superman off the ground and is making him bleed. So it's pretty cool. Now, and at the top, um, of course, we see a small image of Superman and Martian Manhunter. And judging by the look of the image and comparing it to the larger image at the bottom, I would say that the Superman image is a stock Neil Adams Superman pose. And the Martian Manhunter is a Nick Cardi creation. I could be wrong there, but it really doesn't look like Adams. Uh, in any event, uh, this title is called, or this story is titled, So My World Begins, also written by Denny O'Neill, penciled by Dick Dillon, with inked by Joe Gaiella, and edited again by Julie Schwartz. Now, picking up where Superman 253 left off, Superman lands in the Utah desert just in time for the building to reappear again, which I guess means that he was just flying around for a while waiting for it to come back. So he enters and once again sees the Martian Manhunter, but something has caused the Martian to go a little crazy and they end up fighting, damaging most of the building's interior. Superman is about to try the sleeper hold when the whole building begins quaking. Martian Manhunter gets in one more punch before realizing that he's not in some kind of nightmare. This is pretty fortunate for Superman because the quake um, was the building landing on the planet of Vaughn, which has a red sun. Editor's note, Superman loses his powers under a red sun. So, Jean Jones, which is how apparently you say that, uh, brings Superman up to speed on what's been happening to him since he left Earth way back in Justice League of America uh, number 71, which had a May 1969 cover date. Apparently, he was trying to follow his people across space after they fled Mars, which had been devastated by global war. He was following the trail of ionized antimatter fuel that they were using and followed them right through a space warp to the planet Vaughn. After landing, he snuck into an aerial um, arena, sorry, he snuck into an arena-like structure and saw his fellows, fellow Martians strapped to some machinery and their life forces being used to power some kind of war machines. Suddenly, one of the natives, a Vyven, spotted the hero and chased Martian Manhunter into our favorite alien structure just as it was disappearing from Vaughn. Inside, he learned that the original natives of Vaughn had left, had fled the planet after it had been invaded by the Vyven uh, by broadcasting their entire culture, buildings and all, to an entirely different solar system. Unfortunately, the Museum of Ancient Weapons had been caught in a space warp, which therefore means that Dr. Farr's theory was completely and 100% correct, which means it's nice to see that Superman isn't the only one who was able to do that in the Bronze Age. Anyway, uh, Martian Manhunter tells Superman that he's planning on trying to free his people that night, and Superman offers to help. After a quick assessment, we are reminded that Superman has no powers and learn that Martian Manhunter has some, but not all, of his normal increased strength, uh, has limited flight, and absolutely no invulnerability. So Superman has an idea of how to save his, of how to save John Jones's people. But first, he needs a crash course on how to fly the Manhunter ship. Now this part actually humored me because these days, Although, yeah, Martian Manhunter's alive. These days, 
it would just be like a mental download. On one hand, it kind of saves time, and on the other hand, his mental powers are really played up these days. But back then, um, Marshall Manhunter actually had to show him how to use the ship. Um, but before they can put this plan into motion, a female Martian named Belle Jews, I think, shows up after having escaped from the Thyven. The heroes decide to ditch their plan and have Belle Jews sneak them back into the arena. On their way, Martian Manhunter mentions that after all his time in space, he's feeling a little tangle-footed. But Belgeus reminds him that he was plenty agile while he was fighting Superman. So when they reach the tunnel entrance, Superman tells Martian Manhunter to wait outside and wait for his signal while he and Bell enter the tunnel. As he lets her go in front of him, he reveals that he knows that this is some kind of trap. He then tried putting Bell in that same sleeper hold, theorizing, again, correctly, that she was responsible for the Martians falling victim to the Thyven and had attempted to do the same to the heroes, and that she gave herself away when she mentioned that the Superman-Manhunter fight, or when she mentioned the Superman-Manhunter fight, since she was supposedly on Bond at the time. So, in defense, Bell inadvertently takes to the sky, with Superman hanging on and seeing that a Thyven was waiting in ambush, um, on the other end of the tunnel, so, like I said, the theory was correct. Fortunately, the sleeper hold finally kicks in, and the pair crash to the ground near Martian Manhunter's ship. Superman recovers first, somehow, since he... Well, I guess they're both not invulnerable, so I guess that makes sense. But somehow, Superman recovers first, takes off in the ship, and signals to Martian Manhunter to enter the camp while he creates a diversion. He does this by crashing the ship into a building, causing a quote-unquote tremendous explosion. Remember, Superman has no powers. So Manhunter, thinking that Superman is dead and determined not to let Superman's sacrifice be in vain, uses the opportunity to free his people by running in and literally ripping the wiring out of the helmets they're stuck to. The Vivin then ordered the war machines to destroy the Martians, but the machines turn on their masters and kill them instead. Then, Jean asks how that happened, and one of the Martians explains that since the machines are powered by their life force, that also includes their consciousness somehow. Therefore, the war machines are basically under the Martian control and will be useful in rebuilding their civilization on Vaughn. So, Belle then rejoins her people, leaving Jean glad that she did not die with Superman. Speaking of the sometimes Man of Steel, we see a lone figure climbing out of the inferno that Superman's crash had created. We re he reveals himself to be Superman, and that he survived thanks to the fire and shockproof... Uh, I don't have that written. He reveals that he survived thanks to the fire and shockproof suit that he had found in the ship's locker, which is a real coincidence, let me tell you. So before he can meet back up with Jean, to let him know about Bell and that he's alive, another Thyven attacks Superman. So Superman tries running to the weapon museum again, but stumbles as he gets inside. Before he can get up, the Thyven grabs Superman. But before they can do anything, there is another powerful quake, which means that the building is back on Earth. Which also means that Superman is back to his super self, which also means that Superman is able to quickly subdue his attacker. Unfortunately, the museum is now trashed, which, according to Superman, somehow means that it won't be going anywhere again. 
This leaves Superman to hope that John Jones and his people have a happy new beginning. While the next issue box tells us that we will learn about Bell in a future issue. But it won't be next issue, because next issue is apparently the long-awaited team-up of Superman and the Atom. Now you know what? I actually found this to be another fun issue. The art is a little iffy in places, and I don't like the idea of having a two-part story across two books that doesn't have a complete ending, especially since it isn't going to be continued for quite a while, because I looked and I followed Martian Manhunter's appearances. He appears soon in uh, Justice League 100, but that's only a guest appearance, so I don't think that's going to be following this at all. And after that, it's not until years later. So I'll keep you posted on if I find out where it's, or if we come across this part of the story again, but I'm still looking for when that's going to be. Also, I don't know if I'm just getting better at this or if it was really that obvious, but when Belle said that she knew about the Superman Manhunter Rumble, I kind of noticed that immediately. It kind of stuck out like a sore thumb. I'm thinking it was basically really obvious, but who knows. Um, and I usually miss those, which is why I'm thinking that. But also, apparently, there are only three members of the Vibin race. We only ever see two at a time, and then the third one chases Superman. Uh, maybe more will show up later. I don't know. All in all, though, I thought both issues made up a pretty cool story, so I'm pretty happy. The others, the, there was two more stories in this issue. Uh, the first one was originally untitled, again, but was later given the title Flight of the Vultures. Now, this story, and this is pretty interesting, um, originally featured a character title called the Gay Ghost. Now, apparently somewhere between when this issue came out, uh, which was uh, reprinted from Sensation Comics number 8, August 1942, apparently sometime between then and this issue in 1972, um, either it was the Comics Code Authority or something, uh, caused, uh, apparently the term gay went from happy to like homosexual, and with the comics code, that wasn't allowed. So, he was renamed the Grim Ghost, and I actually thought this was cool because they do have to re-letter some stuff in this story, and I didn't look at every panel, but at least at the beginning, they actually match the text style of the original story to make it look like it was the Grim Ghost all along. However, what I find interesting about that isn't so much the censorship, but the gay ghost generally would tell me that he's a happy ghost. Um, but then he's the grim ghost, which is like uh, taking Batman back in the early, the middle Silver Age. No, yeah, early Silver Age. We'll say early Silver Age. When, you know, he was smiling, quipping with Robin you know, out in the daytime, all that fun stuff, you know, happy Batman, and calling him, like, the dreaded Dark Knight. And it's like, that doesn't really fit. This doesn't seem to fit. I didn't actually go through and read the story because it's a, it's a reprint, because, and I don't want to do that. But it just seemed kind of a oxymoron on the name. They turned him from a happy ghost to a grim ghost. But the story was written by Gardner Fox, who is... 
very prominent in the Golden Age, apparently, and uh, was drawn by Howard Purcell. The, the second story uh, is called The Underworld Jam Session, which is a pretty cool title, uh, featuring the character Airwave. Um, don't know the writer. Possibly it was written by the artist, so I'm not sure, but the artist was George Rousseau's and was reprinted from Detective Comics number 88, which had a June 1944 cover date. And that's two down, one left, and a couple more promos, and we'll get to the final issue of the month. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, kids, comics! Hey, Michael! Yes? We have to record a promo for our podcast. I've got one. Read our podcast. Read our podcast. You do know this is an audio medium. Watch our podcast. But you can watch podcasts, but not ours, because let's face it, we've got faces for radio. Um, no, wait, I've got it. Give me a second, right? What? Just listen to our podcast. Listen to our podcast. Snap it. It's short, sweet. I'm liking it. It's good. It's great. Not exactly telling people what our podcast's about, though, is it? We read comics. We read comics. That's true. That's good. Liking it. Liking this pitch. Carry on. Right. Talk about comics. We do. We talk about comics. We read comics, and then we talk about them because we can't talk about them before we read them. Excellent. Keep going. And then we sing. Badly. Yes. Well, badly is purely subjective. But how many other comic book podcasts do you know where people sing? Ages comics. Every Thursday at aplayland.podomatic.com. Up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more supermanhomepage.com superman is a copyrighted feature appearing in action comics magazine okay the final issue of the month is action comics number 413 cover dated june 1972 released april 27 1972 again 52 big pages for a quarter another uh, featuring another nick carty cover and this one, we see a rather old gentleman with a pretty good-looking, um, and I mean good-looking in, in that it's accurate, um, Superman doll. And he's sticking a pin with a skull head on it. And outside the window of this stone building, uh, we see Superman apparently in pain fl uh, fl uh, floating over the city. And of course it says it's the voodoo doom of Superman. Uh, which gives you an idea of what the first story is going to be about. Now, this story didn't have a writer's credit, but from the information I found online, it looks like it was, and I'm prone to believe it because of the way the story reads, um, it was written by Leo Dorfman, penciled by Kurt Swan, and inked by Murphy Anderson. The editor was Murray Boltonoff, and the title is The Voodoo Doom of Superman. In a weird shop, Hidden in a remote corner of Metropolis, three well-dressed criminals um, bring some Superman souvenirs to, doc to a Dr. Mystere. They bring him a cement cast of his boot print, 
a balloon he blew up for a kid at the circus, a lump of charcoal ignited by his heat vision, which somehow is still glowing and giving off smoke, a chunk of ice uh, created with his super breath, which is still frozen, and a record of his brain waves swiped by from the neural mm, can't talk, and a record of his brain waves swiped from the neural neurological institute. Mystere takes the objects, uses some kind of mud or clay to create a voodoo doll, and wraps the brainwave record and either something that is red cloth or part of the balloon around the doll and creates a Superman voodoo doll. Um, nothing else seems to have been used though, so I guess the cement cast and the two stones were pointless. Anyway, the criminals, of course, don't believe that this be, don't believe that this voodoo doll is going to do anything. Uh, so Mystere offers to prove it. Now, before I do that, I should point out that these criminals all have a grudge against Superman, and apparently, so does Doctor Mystere. We don't know what that is yet because it's not revealed quite yet, but he does have some kind of grudge against our favorite Man of Steel. So uh, he takes the uh, so Mystere takes the three criminals to an old building that Superman is scheduled to, de to demolish to make way for a new hospital. He takes a pen and pushes it straight through the doll's arm just as Superman is about to punch the building down. Superman and the onlookers are all shocked when Superman punches the building and it does nothing, as if he was hitting it with ordinary human strength. Fortunately, his invulnerability keeps it from actually hurting him. Uh, but that doesn't stop Superman, and quickly he whips up a super speed cyclone that is able to knock the building down without actually causing damage to the people or the buildings around it, which is pretty cool. And having convinced the criminals that his doll actually works, three men tell Mystere to quit playing games and to just use the doll to kill Superman already. But Mystere has other plans and convinces them that it would be better and more fun to make Superman suffer, and to show him how it feels to be helpless in the grip of someone with even greater power. So the next day, during Superman's Twilight Patrol, Mystere pushes another pin through the doll, this time through the back, and throws the doll to the ground, which ends up removing Superman's flight power, causing him to crash through the steel beams of a new building under construction. I'm not complete. I don't think it's the building that we just saw demolished, but the new hospital that's being built. It's too quick for it to be this far under construction. But in any event, it's another building under construction. And if you've been to a city, you know that there's at least one building under construction all the time. Um, fortunately, he's able to use his super breath to cushion his fall and prevent him from crashing through any of the completed floors. Suddenly, he fly finds that his flying power has mysteriously returned, so he quickly repairs the beams and resumes his patrol. The next night, Mystere and the men steal a gold shipment from an airport loading terminal, and Mystere takes care of Superman by using four pins to pin the doll's arms and legs to an X-shaped object that appears to either be a thin piece of cardboard or a very thin piece of wood. Because it's hard to tell because it's just colored brown. Could even be brown paper. I don't know. At the same moment, in his apartment, Clark Kent finds himself confined to his bed, and as the super hearing picks up... No. At that same moment, in his apartment, Clark Kent finds himself confined to his bed as his superhearing picks up news of the robbery. 
He uses his telescopic vision to see the robbery taking place and uses his heat vision to melt one of the piles of gold bars. Unfortunately, the men have already seized another stack of bars and drive off, the lead in their masks preventing Clark from seeing their faces. Later that night, at a Metropolis club, the three criminals are using, or apparently are using their new quote-unquote earnings to live it up, garnering the attention of two other hoods who decide that they need to tell their boss about the weird new way they're stopping Superman. They're soon at the hideout of their boss, but one Lex Luthor, and after telling him about the voodoo doll, he decides to pay this Mystere a visit himself. Upon meeting his skeptical visitor, Mystere says that for anyone else, he wouldn't bother, but for Luther, he'll prove the doll works. After all, it's not like he proved the doll's effectiveness to three random criminals. Then again, he did just, he did help, they did help him make the doll, so never mind. The next afternoon, at a deserted movie location, Mystere and Luther watch as Superman flies some obsolete rockets for use as props. Mystere takes the opportunity to put pins in the doll's eyes, which blinds Superman, causing him to not only knock over the rocket, but pretty much trash the set before he gets the idea of using supersonic whistles like a bat to avoid hitting anything else and come to a safe landing. Luther, noticing that the rocket fuel fumes choked him but had no effect on Mystere, somehow deduces that he's actually Brainiac in disguise. He had been dismantled back in Jimmy Olsen 130, but Superman didn't realize that Brainiac's master control unit had conveniently been equipped with a telemental ray, which the robot used to control one of the deactivated Superman robots to rebuild Brainiac's body. He was then going to steal Candor, but Superman had actually hidden it away in a secret location, so he took a jet belt and had the robot reactivate the fortress security and then programmed the robot's memory uh, then programmed the robot's memory circuits to melt so that Superman wouldn't realize that what had happened. Because, you know, Superman wouldn't notice the Brainiac and the jet belt were missing and, you know, all that stuff. Then again, it apparently worked, so never mind. But seeing Candor reminded Brainiac of an electronic device that he had observed being used by Kandorian doctors to control the movements of dangerous mental patients. So Brainiac's voodoo doll is actually one of those devices, and he used a combination of the brainwave pattern and pen antenna which broadcast electronic pulses to control Superman's powers. The villains then decide that the time has come to destroy Superman once and for all. So the next day, Superman responds to a large fire while nearby, Luther and Brainiac stab a pin in the doll that should remove Superman's invulnerability, then sets the doll on fire. Above, we see Superman fly overhead, doing his best human torch imitation. Believing Superman to be dead, the human, the humans, the villains, then start fighting over not wanting to share the world with each other. They then spot Brainiac and Luther dolls just sitting nearby, and both assume that they were created to control the other. So they pick them up and suddenly find themselves being violently vibrated, and not in the good way. Superman then shows up, apologizing for taking so long, but he, you know, he had to put out that fire before he could come and turn off the fiber beams in the dolls. He then explains that while he was using his super hearing to hear those ultrasonic whistles while he was flying blind, uh, you know, just a few pages ago, 
he also picked up another set of ultrasonic signals penetrating into his brain near the optic region. Once his vision returned, he was able to trace the signal to Brainiac and Luther and listen in on one of their schemes. And I say it like that because that's how it's written. He was actually listening in on their scheme. The Superman the villain saw die was actually some kind of android covered in chemicals designed to go up in flame at just the right time. Also, he fitted a lead plate on his back so that the quote-unquote voodoo doll wouldn't actually affect him. Brainiac decides that he'd rather destroy himself than suffer the humiliation of being dismantled again and activates a self-destruct. And that involves a disintegrating effect, which also ends up engulfing Luther, basically bringing an end to both of them. And that's how the story ends. The first thing I want to point out is the very Silver Age vibe I got from this story. Part of it is the dialogue, which, even compared to the other books this month, reads more like it's from a reprint as opposed to a new story. Plus, the links Brainiac goes to uh, with the deception and the robbery itself are a little strange. Um, basically something you would have seen in the Golden in the, well, maybe the Golden Age, but definitely the Silver Age. Also, Swan does something in his art this time that he did back in two Superman 233 that bugged me then and bugs me again now. Uh, namely, take, not taking into account the large boundaries that are usually set up for rocket launches and building demolitions. Now, the people at the, de at the demo in this issue are outside of a fence, granted, but this fence is basically on the property line. In real life, that fence would be extended much further out, or there would actually be another fence construction much further out to protect the people from things like debris or dust. Because if there's one thing we learned on 9/11 is that a lot of people can be is that people can be very adversely affected by dust from a building, you know, falling down. Um, also. Um, there's a continuity glitch, and that all of Superman's deactivated robots are supposed to be in a glacier, not in the fortress. Um, I also noticed that, like the other story I'm going to talk about in this issue, Superman's basically a background character. This is basically a Mystere slash Brainiac story. Uh, most of it is from, from the villain's point of view. Superman doesn't appear all that much. It's unfortunate, but it happens. And um, but I'm really wondering if there's going to be a letter writer pointing out the continuity error later on. Um, on the plus side, though, for the most part, the Swanderson art is great. The detail included in the art, including the building Superman tears down, is actually pretty phenomenal. Uh, especially considering Swan had to use quite a few panels per page in order for this story to fit just 14 pages. Um, again, though, I've, I've just been, for the most part, there have been some golden moments occasionally, especially once Carrie Bates came along, but a lot, I, I'm not really liking some of these action stories, and I hope that's going to change soon. I do know Julie Schwartz will be taking over the book as editor in just a few more issues. I want to say four or five more. So hopefully things will pick up in action soon. Uh, the second story in this issue was The Man Who Destroyed Eclipso, 
and you'll never guess who what character that features. That's right. It's Bozo the Clown. No, just kidding. It's Eclipso. Uh, it was written by Bob Haney, drawn by Alex Todd, and is reprinted from House of Secrets number 65, which had a March-April 1964 cover date. Now, the final story is the first of the two new features I was mentioning. For the first time since I started this show, the backup, the new backup story in this issue is not a Superman story. In fact, I'm going to let you find out who it is by playing this little tune. Metamorpho. And the first story uh, that we're covering in his new series in Action Comics is The Seven Sins of Simon Stagg, written by Bob Haney, penciled by John Kalman, and inked by Murphy Anderson. Now we start off with basically the origin story, which was kind of covered in that song, but I'm going to go ahead and go over it again for you. Once he was Rex Mason, Devil May Care's soldier of fortune. But by loving and being loved by willful playgirl Sapphire Stagg, he incurred the wrath of her power-mad tycoon genius father, Simon Stagg, who sent him on a one-way mission to obtain the legendary Orb of Ra inside a lost Egyptian pyramid where he met treachery and betrayal. Trapped within the pyramid, the effects of a glowing meteor turned him into a fantastic being unlike any of the world had ever known. Able to will himself into a thousand and one chemical forms, he became that fabulous freak, 
bitterly facing a unique and awesome destiny, Metamorpho the Element Man. Now, during an evening storm at the Simon Stagg Mansion, Simon Stagg is visited by his old schoolmate, Ulysses Bronson. We then spend the next page learning that while Simon was always number one at everything, Ulysses was always number two, which he apparently takes as an honor. He reveals that he's there to invite Simon and the rest of the gang, which is Sapphire, Metamorpho, and Simon Stagg's uh, basically Neanderthal butler, Java, into or to his dream project titled Morality Mountain. So the next day, now remember this is a Bob Haney story. So the next day, they all fly a private plane to the base of Morality Mountain. At the entrance, we see what appears to be carvings of several naked people in pain. Now, the only reason I say they're naked, since they're kind of small and it's hard to tell, but it's I, I'm picking up on it because basically the certain parts that normally wouldn't be allowed to be seen on the naked person, especially in a 1970s comic book, is covered. Either by arms, legs, other people's heads, that kind of thing. And I wouldn't think they'd go to that extreme to do that if they're supposed to be clothed. That's all I'm saying. But there's like hundreds of these guys carved into this wall. And above the door is a line from Dante's Inferno, Abandon hope, all ye who enter. Which, of course, leads Metamorpho to refer to this as Disneyland for downers. Excuse me. Inside, we learn that there are at least seven different exhibits. Each one shows casing each of the deadly sins. Unfortunately, none of the exhibits have faces because Ulysses ran out of money. Getting the hint, Simon agrees to donate a million dollars that is needed to complete the exhibits. Several weeks later, Stagg receives another invite from Ulysses, this time for the opening of Morality Mountain. However, when they arrive the next day, they learn that it's actually a pre-opening private tour because the um, mountain doesn't actually open until tomorrow. Ulysses sends the others to the lounge so he can give his hero a private tour. Inside, Simon learns that his face has been carved on the statues because Ulysses believes that he exhibits each and every one of the seven deadly sins and plans to put it on display for the entire world to see. Then, he pulls a gun on Stag, intending to kill him. When Stag tells him that Metamorpho will stop him, after hesitating to say it, we cut to the lounge where Metamorpho was stuck in... 200 proof acid, trying to keep Java and Sapphire safe. Unfortunately, the acid is starting to make him dissolve. To be continued. Now, I'll be honest with you here. I haven't really read much Metamorpho. In fact, other than his appearance, uh, other than his appearances on the Justice League animated series and Batman: Brave and the Bold, plus his cameos and various DC crossovers, this is my first Metamorpho story. Now, so for, for some more background, Metamorpho first debuted in Brave and the Bold number 57, which had a December 1964 cover date, in a story written by Bob Haney, penciled by Ramona Freden, and inked by Charles Paris. And after another issue of, his, of a solo story in Brave and the Bold, Metamorpho graduated to his own series, which lasted 17 issues, and actually garnered him a couple of appearances in Brave and the Bold, teaming up with the Metal Men and Batman, 
plus an appearance in the Justice League. Of course, he declines their offer for um, membership. Uh, also, he was cool enough that that song I played for you came from a Power Records album uh, featuring theme songs for Metamorpho as well as The Flash, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, um, and the Justice League of America, in which on that, he's actually a member. So that's cool. Um, but after those 17 issues, the, it was can uh, his story was canceled, and now he's back as a backup feature in Action Comics. Now the cool thing I like about this story is the art. Um, Stag, Metamorpho, Sapphire, and Java are all drawn in the style rem rem reminiscent uh, they're all drawn in a style reminiscent of Ramona Freighton. But everything else looks like normal Kalnan Anderson art. That is to say, different poses, but basically Anderson art. Now, they did this kind of thing in the Justice League animated series too. So I don't know if it's something they are supposed to do every time, or if it's just something they're do in honor of Ramona Freighton. But I kind of like it. Because um, it it works without looking too jostled like when you've got Al Plastino inking the heads in a Jack Kirby book. Those are two extremes. These are a little closer. Um, unfortunately, what hurts this story is that it's all set up and leaves the title character playing a secondary role, which is kind of sad considering this is supposed to be his debut story in a new comic book. And basically... It's the Simon Stagg story. Hopefully we get to see him do more next issue. Um, we, like, and like I was just saying, we don't even see Metamorpho do anything heroic until the last page. Um, on the other hand, though, I'm still intrigued enough by the story to look forward to next issue and see the conclusion. So that's pretty cool. Now, before, now normally this is where I would go to more promos before we get to Elsewhere in the Multiverse. But... My other new feature um, is that I'm going to start going over the ads in these books because I'm actually remembering, going to start remembering to pull out the ad, the uh, actual print comics and look at the ads as I go through these since I have most of them. Um, so we're going to start off with the inside front cover, which has the new three-wheel rumblers from Hot Wheels. Um, and these are basically, uh, guys on motorcycles, and apparently they're tearing up Hot Wheels tracks all over America, and they're made by Mattel, and they don't look very, they look pretty cheaply made even in the ads, so I'm guessing they look pretty cheaply made, back, but then again, that was 1972, so what do you expect? Um... Let's see a few more pages of story. We get to Captain Aurora. He takes games from grown-ups and changes them for kids. He's part outlaw, part hero. He is Captain Aurora. And he makes um, the latest games they're advertising are All-American Skittle Bowl and All-American Skittle Scoreball. And I don't know what they are. Apparently you've seen them on TV. I haven't, uh, and up to now they were for adults only, but now they are for kids, thanks to Aurora. And Scuttle Bowl looks like bowling with a tetherball, 
And Skittle Scoreball looks a lot like, um, oh, what's that called? This thing. Fun game. Anyway, it looks like using a tether ball to knock balls into one of those rings of sco uh, to score. Uh, kind of like the um, games game. Do they have them at all the, at all your boardwalks and arcades and Chuck E. Cheese restaurants? Um, and I just can't think of the name of it. Anyway, um, coming soon from Warner Brothers is the wildest experience ever, Jungle Habitat. And um, this is apparently a zoo kind of thing that you can drive your car through like a safari. Cross hundreds of acres of wooded hills through a rainforest, mile, uh, mile after mile of winding road, you'll spot zebra, lion, and that's what a herd of lions is called. It's a lion pride. And all sorts of things. And this is apparently um, it's the West Milford Jungle Habitat. near uh, Just off the New York State Thruway near Suffern and Greenaway Lake. Right inside, just across the New York-New Jersey border in New Jersey. Not too far from Hackensack. Um, apparently you can get a souvenir book for Book 25 too, so that's pretty cool. Uh, let's see. Next up, we have one of those cool um, ad pages where you know people send in their tiny little ads and they fill it up. Not too many people wrote in, especially since the bottom half of this page is something I'm going to read to you. Uh, get ready for a price change. You will pay five cents less beginning with the next issue of this magazine. Only twenty cents. Rather than explain our new price policy personally, I've asked all our editors to tell you in their own way why there will be a price reduction for this magazine. Take over fellow editors, written by Carmine Infantino, publisher. So here's what the editors have to say. In the past, we've always been honest and will continue to keep faith with our readers. Last June, we were forced to raise the price of our magazines. There was simply no way we could retain the 15% or the 15 cent price and also retain the quality you've come to expect from us in the 30 plus years we've been entertaining you. Printing, engraving, shipping, everything up to and including staples was costing us more. But we didn't want to, cha to charge more and not give more, which was a dilemma. We solved it by adding 16 extra pages to each of our comments. Sure, the material in them wasn't new, but those were and are good stories the best we could call from our library. Well, the economic situation has changed again. In fact, lately it's been changing faster than a chameleon on a patchwork quilt. So while we, were, we are forced to cut back, it means we can eliminate the re reprint material and reduce our price by a nickel. We will still be providing more for your money than any company in the field. How? Well, all our magazines will soon contain additional pages of fresh excitement in story and art. No other publisher is offering, offering you that deal. None is likely to. We offer greater quantity as well as greater quality. We think that makes DC Comics the best entertainment buy available now as in the past. Honestly. Signed, Julius Batman Schwartz, Joe Jimmy Olsen Orlando, Dorothy Lois Lane Woolfolk, who I just recently found out is was the... See if I get this straight. The lesbian lover of William Moulton Marsden's wife, who of course is the creator of Wonder Woman, 
and the three of them lived together, and I think all three of them worked on Wonder Woman stories. That's right. That was pretty cool. Thank you, Martin Pasco, for that. Uh, Murray Superboy Boltonoff, Denny Wonder Woman O'Neill, Soul Production Harrison, or I guess Saul Production Harrison? Yeah. Joe Tarzan Kubert, Jack King Kirby, and E. Nelson the Fan Bridwell. P.S. Note to subscribers. All subscriptions will be extended so that the additional issues you receive will make up for the differences between the new 20% price and the rate you paid, which was based on the 25-cent magazines. So that's pretty cool, too. So beginning next issue, the pages are going to be smaller, probably going to have smaller stories to review, and you're only going to have to pay 20 cents an issue. You don't see them pulling back on the price too much. In fact, I think that's the last time we're going to see that. The next ad is for Kirby Unleashed, a King Kirby portfolio for $4. With art assembled from Jack Kirby's personal collection, supersized pages of comic history, six color paintings, all giant size, full color wraparound cover painting at four by 14 inches by 22 inches. And the development of Comicdom's most prolific storyteller is presented for you. Unpublished drawings, early strips, rare photographs, not available on newsstands. This is going to cost you four bucks, people. Four bucks. And this cover looks pretty cool. It looks like, um, these look like either warriors from Asgard or, I don't know, New Genesis or Apocalypse, something like that. They got some weird, very Kirby-esque armor, which makes sense since it's Kirby. And uh, that might even be the cover, I'm not sure. That looks pretty cool. Uh, the next one is Music Should Be Free, or as free as possible. I think that's true. Uh, so it's Music and Words, the magazine that puts it together, where you get uh, interesting things. Let's see, what do you get? A pop song belongs to the world. Now there's a new complete magazine that puts the word of music together for you and only costs a whole dollar. You get a 10-song music supplement with the words and the music to top hits by Van Morrison, Climax, Fifth Dimension, Led Zeppelin, The Bee Gees, Elton John, Three Dog Night, The Faces, The Carpenters, and Wilson Pickett. Plus interesting stories on The Who, Jefferson Airplane, Santana, David Peel, B.B. King, George Harrison, and you'll read about blues, jazz, rock, and country. And all of it is in one issue of this book. Uh, words and Music offers special departments. Musicians Corner, High Fidelity Today, Record Reviews, because they didn't have tapes and CDs there, just records, News, and Ripoff of the Month, where every reader will have their chance to sound off and warn others. Awesome. I don't think they do that anymore. Um, another page of those lovely uh, send in your ad and we'll paste them all on one page. They've actually got some comic book stores. Passaic Book Center, 594 Main Avenue, Passaic, New Jersey. Uh, comics from Golden Age to Present. Another pl place, in Brooklyn, place in Brooklyn, New York. Old comics bought and sold, over a half million in stock. Giant 40-page catalog for only 50 cents. Comics book, comic books again. 
Uh, let's see. We buy and sell 48-page Marvel Comics price and checklist and DC price list for 50 cents. That is not grammatically correct, but whatever. Comics books for sale. Now, this ad I have seen forever. This ad basically stays the same forever. I'm sure the store changes, but for now, it's Howard D. Rogowski from Flushing, New York. 250,000 comics in stock. The complete DC and Marvel groups from 1935 to 72. Also original art, pulps, toys, docs, savage, movie items, science fiction mags, etc. from 1920 to 72. We also buy. Send selling lists with prices. Giant catalog is 35 cents. Plus you can get a banana stamp, people. Free powerful muscles fast. How to be taller, which basically means, you know, hit puberty. Draw cartoons for money. Buy or build your own cart or mini bike frame for $10 or less. Right. Then, of course, in the reprints, they don't want to break it up with ads too much, so we don't get too many ads later on in the issue. Get more ads on another page with several ads, including an 8mm motion picture projector, color, or black and white. Uh, karate, jiu-jitsu, judo, boxing, sabate. Uh, endurance stunts. You get weighted wristlets to help build muscle power. A secret book safe. X-ray specs. Monster size monsters. Uh, and then uh, the last page, of course, we have one of those lovely weight uh, weight training ads. And uh, inside back cover, we have 1,000 Dayglow decals. All your favorites printed in now designs that really say it. And uh, from what I see, we have a stop sign with the word go on it. A happy face. A flower. Butterfly. The peace symbol in a teardrop formation. A peace symbol in the peace symbol formation. Love. Uh, smile. Zodiac. Ecology, Peace, Daisies, and more. And this is only for a dollar. And the back cover. Dig these. Four new snap-tied drag construction models you build without glue, without paint, and without help. And basically, and this is kind of weird, um, basically what they're showing is construction equipment. It looks like you've got a, a green shovel, a red bulldozer, a red dump truck, and a yellow screaming skip shovel and it shows you how they just snap together and for some reason the dump truck is about to fall flat on its front I don't know why they would show that on the image but the cool thing is these are extreme construction vehicles because they're all tricked out with the super engine and the giant exhausts and everything that looks like they're going to be drag racing these things so what if that's how they look in real life Anyway, that's from Monogram by Mattel. Any more real, and you'd need a hard hat. So that's the ads for that issue. I'm going to play a couple more promos and come back with Elsewhere in the DC Multiverse for this month. We'll be right back. December 7th. Earth 2. 1941. A world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. 
a world at war. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron. The Tales of the Justice Society of America, every Friday at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Bad Girl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Bad Girl to Oracle is a podcast and site dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the Bad Girl mantle for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1985. The goal of BTO is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Batgirl and continue on through her current tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at vintage issues of Detective Comics and Batman and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I examine Barbara Gordon's appearances in the media, such as TV, film, etc. I've been blessed to be able to interview writer Brian Q. Miller, and I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Please visit us online at batgirltooracle.net and look for us on iTunes. Thank you. Okay, elsewhere in the DC multiverse, it was a pretty busy month at DC. Uh, we have Falling in Love number 133 which also not only has fun stories, but also tells you how to be popular at parties. Uh, Forever People number nine. Oh, by the way, if you've ever want to see Jack Kirby drawing Dead Man, you should check out the cover to Forever People number nine. That looks cool. Anyway, Army of War number 246. Brave and the Bold number 102, featuring a, a team-up of Batman and the Teen Titans. It's a Nick Cardi cover, but it looks really cool. Uh, GI Combat number 154. Featuring the new Haunted Tank. House of Secrets number 98, which has another one of those really eerie Mike Kaluta covers. Which looks like a guy that's half bug, he's either half bug or being eaten by a bug. I can't really tell. Uh, Weird Western Tales number 12. With a Joe Cooper cover that doesn't look half bad actually. From Beyond the Unknown number 17. <laughs> Featuring aliens who believe it's scientifically impossible that there could be a planet like Earth whose most famous leader is named Nixon. Remember, Nixon still, uh, Pre Richard Nixon was still the president then, so that makes sense. We have DC Star Spangled War Stories number 163. 
Witching Hour, number 21, with a very moody Nick Cardi cover. Young Romance, number 183, which tells you how to act on a date. Uh, a Nick Cardi cover to Justice League of America, number 99, to just show you that how close we are to that Justice League 100 that Martian Manager is supposed to be in. Secrets of Sinister House, with a Nick Cardi cover featuring a bride running away from a skeleton. We have Young Love number 96, where you can find out if he treats you right. Batman number 242, featuring the story Bruce Wayne, Rest in Peace. Uh, we have New Gods number 9, which oh, features the bug. And of course has Light Ray and Orion on the side of the cover. Jimmy Olsen number 150, which is, I believe, the second issue since Jack Kirby finished on that book. Then we have Heartthrobs, number 142, where you can test yourself to find out what kind of date are you. We have House of Mystery 203. That's a really cool Russ Heath cover on that, with the lady turning into a, looks like an eagle, a la the Sorcerers from He-Man. So that's cool. We have Lois Lane, number 123, which has her wearing a spacesuit that looks very reminiscent of, like, the Challenges of the Unknown yellow and red outfits. And she's apparently lost in space. We have Flash, number 216, with a Nick Cardi cover, which I didn't know he did any Flash covers, but that's cool. Featuring uh, Mr. Element turning, into, uh, turning Flash into some kind of green gas or something, so that's interesting. Plus, you not only get a Kid Flash story, but a Golden Age Flash story. So, yes. Uh, Girls Love, number 170, How to Make Up After a Fight. I don't know how they can print that in a code-approved comic, but okay. We have Superboy, number 187. Looks like he's about to head a, lead a riot, which can't be good. We have Unexpected, number 136, which has a sleeping woman about to be attacked by an alligator. Maybe a crocodile. I can't tell. Adventure Comics number 420 with Superman not in the issue at all. It's Supergirl and it looks like she's throwing a cannon that she has trashed. We have Detective Comics 424 with Batman. Wow, that's a cool cover by Mike Luda. I like that cover. Uh, going up against a guy with a cowboy hat and money and he's shooting at him and Batman seems to be running right into it, so that can't be good. And finally this month is Tarzan of the Apes, number 209, uh, which is the third DC issue featuring Tarzan saving a woman, possibly Jane, from a monkey and not one of the rock, a member of the rock group either. And that's it for this month. Um, I do want to point out that I have created a new email address for this show. Um, I know I was using one for such a long time, but I decided, you know what, it's time for this show. Uh, I've got some things coming up on the horizon that are going to, well, not really require me to change it, but give me the opportunity to come up with a new one. And so the new email address is superbronze1970 at gmail.com. So feel free to write in, and you all have a good week. Thank you for listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer. 
Superman and the Bronze Age is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork, where new episodes are posted weekly. Episodes are also posted at supermanandthebronzeage.blogspot.com and supermanhomepage.com. You can also subscribe to this show via RSS feed and iTunes. All images, characters, and music used in the show are for entertainment purposes only. No money is made by the show. Superman is created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Thank you for listening, and God bless. Superman is also a copyrighted feature, appearing in Superman DC Publications.